0: Hello and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University Podcast. I'm
1: James,
2: I'm Nick
0: and I'm Naomi and together we're inviting you
1: to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge.
2: So in this second series we're talking about futures.
1: And in this third episode of the series we're asking the question what is the future of well-being?
2: And what even is well-being to begin with?
0: Hang on to your hats folks, because we're going to cover everything from surveys, MTV, microwave ovens, GDP, mental health, and Pop-Tarts.
2: So who are we talking to in this episode?
3: We talked to a psychologist and neuroscientist. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm a psychologist working on social media wellbeing and adolescent development.
4: A psychiatrist. My name's Tamsin Ford. I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist, um, but one that um, works in the field of epidemiology, which these days needs very little introduction. And a welfare economist.
5: Hi, I'm Mark. I'm uh, sort of an economist. Um, I work on wellbeing in in a public policy context, um, but not just from economics, also psychology and other things.
1: As usual, we began by asking our guests to tell us a little about their research.
0: So let's start with Tamsin, if if we
4: can. My interests are about how we can make services and interventions for children's mental health better, how we can get more children to access effective treatment if they need that. But I'm not talking about just the kind of difficulties that people would come to clinic to see me with I'm talking about all services because all interactions with a child are a chance to detect distress if there is any and intervene to help someone develop to their fullest potential.
5: Uh, I'm interested in everything to do with well-being but particularly as it applies to public policy and I'm interested in uh, kind of exploring opportunities to craft well-being public policies that are transformative but then also ethical.
3: Questions around the digital world and how it affects well-being, mental health, and development are really central at the moment to public and academic conversation. However, they're often seen as separate from the core study of development, well-being, mental health, etc. And, and I really feel passionate about bringing those two together and also providing the infrastructure um, and the all the other research. Um, approaches necessary to do so successfully in the 21st century. So this episode is all about mental health. Obviously, that's a big part of research
0: for all for all of you guys. Um, and we're you're curious about what mental health and well-being will look like in the future. So we want to make sure we get our, our words right from the start. Um, and can we start again with with Tamsin here? What's the difference between well-being and mental
4: health? Well, that's a million dollar question. Um, I'm going to um, quote from um, Through the Looking Glass. Um, So, and I I owe this very useful quote to Neil Humphreys. Um, What do do we mean when we're talking about mental health or wellbeing? And, And Humpty Dumpty says, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean. And I think wellbeing in particular is a really nebulous concept, although we all think we know what it means. um, Whereas I guess because I am from a health background, mental health to me means everything from those who really struggle and are clinically impaired at one end of the spectrum, to those who are really thriving at the other. And there is an overlap between those who are thriving and those who are doing well and well being in my mind. But I think you'd find umpteen different ways of describing and defining well being. Um, And I'm really interested to know what Amy and Mark have to say about this.
3: Yeah, Amy, do you want to come in here? I think we use the words very loosely in everyday life and it does trickle into academic life as well. So when I did my PhD, at least in, in my discipline, which wasn't always, you know, we didn't really have a lot of clinical input from those working in clinics, for example, and people did use the term very loosely. And I think coming to Cambridge was an eye opener and sort of the challenges I got in trying to define those terms. So I think we really I agree with tamzin that well being especially is in the end maybe a powerful concept almost because it's defined in the eye of the beholder. We might all have a different concept, um, about what it means to feel good or, or to be satisfied with our lives. Um, And that might actually make it a valuable concept in itself to to measure and explore. I think mental health, I often find it quite helpful to think about kind of mental ill health side of the people who are struggling Um, and then that being a continuum to those who really thrive. But in in research, we often try to sometimes split those in two as well. yeah, but I think it is—it is a really difficult thing that we are also just trying to figure out as we go.
0: Can I ask, um, what role does culture play in in well-being? Because we were talking about sort of individual differences in what well-being could mean.
4: I think it's huge. Um, so I think, you know, well, as as Amy was hinting at earlier, um, the culture you grow up in and what's acceptable to where to do to be um can make a huge um issue for your well-being so for example in certain environments now being a trans person is not such a big issue that it would have been 10 or 20 years ago where it was much more stigmatized I'm not saying that there isn't any stigma but that is a really sort of stark example of how cultural issues can impact on people's well-being
5: I guess one of the main points that I'd just like to underline is that um, outside of psychology, well-being is is often indeed, I would say typically not defined as a mental state. Um, and really psychology's contribution in a lot of ways to the broader well-being discourse is to say like there are these very significant mental aspects to it. Um, so in economics historically, there was a strong emphasis on whether your preferences are satisfied, and that was the definition of well-being. And then more recently that has expanded to say um like do you have the resources broadly defined to live the kind of life you want to live and do the kind of things you want to do Um, so that would include mental health as part of it and physical health and income and then political enfranchisement and whether you have the right kind of environment in which you can flourish and it might be that um the kind of ultimate payoff of being able to live the life you want and do the things you do is a kind of good mental state. Maybe it's happiness, sense of meaning and purpose, this kind of stuff. Um, But in the policy discourse, there's been for a long time um, mostly an emphasis on these kind of more material issues.
0: So it's a mix of internal and external factors that sort of comprise well-being. Is that kind of what you're getting at?
5: Yeah, but I, I would stress that there's a lot of arguments about this. Um, yeah, so philosophers in particular tend to, I think, want to reduce it down to like one thing. So like if ultimately it's about happiness or meaning and purpose or something, then that's how we should define it. Whereas I think in the policy space, there's a bit more of a, an openness to say, well, it's different things to different people and we need to respect all these different value judgments and that kind of thing.
4: I have to say, I think the definition, you you know, this broader definition makes a great deal of sense. To me, um, because I think otherwise you get in a stuck in an argument, um, which happens in the mental health space quite a lot about the overlap between mental health and well-being. And it's like a Venn diagram with, with quite a big intersection, but it's not perfect. Um, and I think what's happening, sadly, is we're stripping away people's language to describe when they're struggling, because mental health is now being taken to mean mental ill health and so you get people saying strangled things like you know well i i have mental health at the moment which when you stop and think about it is completely nonsensical and i think it's because of the stigma around poor mental health that means that constantly you get these shifts in words um and as amy said there's a lot of loose use of language but actually language matters and i think you're absolutely right, but there is a huge cultural influence, and actually, you know, physical and economic resources that you have to live your life have a huge impact on well-being, but also on health, which is just one part of that.
1: Mark, I'm curious, given this conversation we've been having, how you go how you go about measuring well-being? So, so. Clearly, from what I understand, that's everything you're about. But how do we measure well-being?
5: Yeah, in many ways. um, And I guess it depends partially on what you think well-being is. Um, So Amy and Tamsin can can speak a lot more um, thoroughly than I can about the measures used in psychology. But so I guess in psychology, the things that stand out for me are commonly these life satisfaction scales. So we ask people, how satisfied are you with your life on a scale from one to ten? And then these kind of more psychometric instruments where you have a longer survey um, and you ask people questions about their levels of stress or or whether they feel like they have good social relationships, their feelings of meaning and purpose. And there's different surveys for different psychological aspects of well-being. Um, On the kind of economic resources front, um, there's some surveys that are really huge, like hundreds of questions, um, some that are are shorter, just a, a matter of like, what is your income? And then we use that as a proxy for all sorts of stuff um, in economics, income has been used as a substitute for preference satisfaction. Like the idea is that the more income you have, the more of your preferences you're able to satisfy. And we're only now starting to think that this kind of breaks down after a while. Um, one one point that I would that is very central to my own research is that because well-being involves making a value judgment, you're saying this is good for somebody. Um, In the context of public policy, when we move out of the research community and into a democratic space, it's very important that the citizens themselves endorse the measures. Um, And so a lot of the research we're doing at the moment um, with Anna Alexandrova and and other colleagues is is looking at ways to democratize the measurement of well-being, so asking people what they think it is. And then proposing measures to them often from the psychological literature uh, from the academic literature and then tailoring it to suit what those people think is is relevant.
3: yeah i think for for us like there's there's a couple of differentiations so you have measures that are more um in the moment so you have what we call effective approaches where you ask people on a moment to moment basis how are you feeling you know are you feeling good and and that gives us a very different set of measurements to when you're asking people to kind of judge their lives as a whole which you you can either do in in how mark said in this life satisfaction approach where you ask people how dissatisfied or satisfied are you with your life Um, but you could also use it other academics use objective list approaches, so where you might have a list of 10 or, or, or so things that you think matter. Uh, for example, for adolescents, we often say kind of how satisfied are you with your appearance, with your friends, with your family, with your school, with your schoolwork and with your life. And, and so there you are already kind of giving a person a framework to judge their well-being in by telling them different components they should think about so you have these effective approaches that are really in the moment just asking people how they feel and then you have those more give us a judgment approaches that can either tell people what component they should think about or kind of leave it completely open and let them choose you know how do i answer how satisfied i am i am with my life and they all have different pros and cons but they're they're all also very different. <laughs> so I think that's that's the complexity in this space. and
1: And why is it so important that we get this measurement right? Why is it important to measure well-being and and are the ways in which we're able to measure it are they going to change in the future?
3: I think we we're at a state where we can, for example, measure. In the moment well-being a lot easier you know we can send questions to smartphones on a moment to moment basis asking people very short questions about how they're feeling and what we see is that that those results are very very different to when we ask people to kind to evaluate their life as a whole and i think they might represent very different states of being Um, and so so when we discuss it in my group Something that always comes up is, you know, if you're if you're a parent and you say, oh, you could raise a child that at the end of their life looks back and says, oh, I actually had quite a, you know, I'm quite, I'm very satisfied with my life. But if you measure them on a day by day basis, they often said that they were sad. uh, Would that be kind of would you aim for that, or would you aim for one that might say at the end of their life, oh, I'm a bit, I'm dissatisfied? with my life overall but actually every day I felt quite happy (laughs) and so it's yeah we we don't really know yet I don't think that one measure is better than the other so I think we need to explore more what it means to live a good life in many different disciplines to actually understand what we want to measure and as Mark said also go out and and ask what people mean by well-being especially if this is going to start feeding into these policy-based decisions we want to move maybe from a GDP based measure of country success to something based on well being, we need to know what that actually is.
2: Okay, so hang on, I have some questions here.
1: I bet you do. Welcome to
0: my world.
2: So, remind me the difference between well being and mental health.
0: Well, first, we learned that there are lots of different ways to define well being, and that well being, mental health, and mental ill health are not all the same thing. So, we learned that well being can be affected by the culture we live in because different cultural values might determine how at home we feel as individuals.
1: I thought Amy summarised this well. She said, well-being is defined in the eye of the beholder. You know, just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, or a glorious podcast voice is in the ear of the listener.
2: Good point. But I'm still wondering about the difference between well-being and mental health.
0: Yeah, so basically well-being is a fuzzy concept which might include mental health but goes beyond it. We heard that well-being is a mixture of both internal and external factors, so the environment around you and your response to it. Mental health might be part of that, but it's not the whole story.
1: Yeah, Mark told us that philosophers in particular tend to want to boil well-being down to one key thing, like happiness, but that well-being means something different to different people, and we need to respect that. So that's you told pesky philosophers.
2: Okay. So if well-being is a bit of a slippery concept, why try to define it in the first place?
0: Good question. We care about the definition because that helps us to measure well-being and then to make comparisons between different countries, regions, life stages, periods of history, and so on.
1: Exactly. Often in psychology and economics, life satisfaction scales are used. So someone would be asked something like,
0: on a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your life?
1: Wow, what a question.
0: I know, no messing around, straight to the point. Oh, hi, nice to
1: meet you. Are you happy with your life?
0: They can also do more fancy technical stuff like sending questions to your smartphone on a moment to moment basis, asking people very short questions about how they're feeling right then and there.
2: I can imagine that it matters quite a lot what you were doing just before.
1: Yeah, like if you just had a root canal or you just eaten a whole box of chocolate marshmallow Pop-Tarts.
0: Chocolate marshmallow? Are you sure that's really the best flavor, James? <laughs> oh, didn't like being challenged, I <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, this approach of asking people how they feel on a moment-to-moment basis is called an affective approach in psychology, because you're asking people about their affect, or how they feel in response to something. Amy told us that those in-the-moment results are very, very different to when we ask people to evaluate their life as a whole. Maybe because of the Pop-Tart effect. Someone should publish that.
2: Is there not something a bit Black Mirror-ish about this? About your phone constantly asking you, how you're doing, how you're feeling? Isn't that just a little bit creepy?
1: It reminds me of Navi, the fairy from Zelda, except it's less, hey, listen, and more, hey, I'm listening. I sure hope there was some Zelda fans, otherwise that reference will bomb.
0: Moving swiftly past that, I guess it could be a bit creepy, but it could also be kind of cool. If you were feeling okay most of the time, you'd be able to look back and be like, "Wow, I had a pretty good month, didn't I?" So maybe it's more like it's a wonderful life and less like Black Mirror.
2: Okay. So what I'm taking away from this is that well-being is a bit of a slippery subject. James plays a lot of video games, and Naomi's film tastes got stuck in the 1940s.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, let's head back to the conversation. Uh, we've just been talking about GDP or gross domestic product as an economic measure of a country's success from a monetary standpoint, and I'm about to ask Amy a little bit more about that. Amy just mentioned GDP, and and Mark, I think that might have something to do with uh, research at the ben- Bennett Institute. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that and how well-being um, might be sort of factored into? societal progress, productivity, and stuff alongside GDP?
5: Yeah, I can try. Um, I I guess uh, one way to think about it is that the the 20th century in particular in OECD countries, but I'd say especially the last, say, 30 years of the 20th century, was really defined by this um, economic paradigm that's sometimes called neoliberalism. I'm not a huge fan of that term. but there was a kind of arch- an analytic architecture that was developed by economists that was really powerful and allowed you to do cost-benefit analysis and a lot of other fancy tricks. But a lot of this uh, architecture relies on simplifying assumptions, and so it kind of boils down really complex policy problems into a few key variables like efficiency-equity trade-offs, a kind of strong emphasis on productivity growth. And then this kind of manifested in a range of political battles that I think really defined that that later part of the 20th century, like, for example, the battle over whether central banks should target unemployment and should target inflation. And I think there's a kind of growing feeling among at least the economics establishment, but I think certainly more broadly in society um, that this kind of way of thinking about things is, is too reductive and is a bit played out. Um, and, in, and we're now kind of in a situation where we don't have massive scarcity. Um, And we don't, uh, we kind of have all this growth, but people still aren't well, they're not happy. Um, And so we need to have a kind of more sophisticated way of thinking about what things we consider in policymaking. Um, And for that, we can really start to use a lot of this well-being material. So first moving beyond income to also think about health, mental health, environmental quality, things like that, sustainability. Um, But then also thinking maybe more transformatively around whether instead of thinking in terms of redistribution, which I think was a big part of the 20th century, we think more about public investment and social investment and kind of giving people a a baseline level of of, um, resources that they can use to live well. Um, And I think we're very much still exploring this, as Amy said, with kind of the measurement getting better and these value judgments being explored, this is very new territory. Um, But I I think there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm in the space. And we're making a lot of interesting discoveries all the time
0: has COVID had an impact on accelerating thinking about well-being more in this context? Or was this
5: something that was sort of
0: already on the table pre-COVID? Um,
5: so hard to say. I mean, so my sense is that culturally it's had a big impact. Um, so more people working from home, more people getting dogs, more people moving out of the central city. These are going to have effects on people's values. And I think COVID allowed a lot of people to explore lifestyles that they weren't previously allowed to explore. I think also the kind of crushing recessionary effects of COVID will kind of scar a generation and have a lot of impacts on people's attitudes to distribution and the welfare system and these kind of things. Um, At the same time, uh, I don't get the sense that there's a a huge push among the governing class uh, in other countries that's that's that uh, on board with radical change in the paradigm. Um, the uk has been at the at the vanguard i think of, of well-being public policy for quite some time and so it's hard for me to tell whether i've only just come to the uk i should should make that clear it's hard for me to tell whether the uk government has kind of accelerated its its attitude to try to be a bit more sophisticated in thinking about well-being or if there's just a path dependency that goes back for the last 20 years of of effort in this space
1: just before we move on is how you guys feel, all three of you, about the relationship between the sort of individual measures of well-being, which Amy's mentioned some of, I can't quite remember, maybe Tamsin's touched on them as well, and then some of these kind of like cross-sectional societal measures of well-being that Mark has mentioned. How do those interact?
3: I think, like, as, as being trained in psychology there is a way of seeing well-being as an individual thing that we want to measure and target. I think naturally societal well-being might be defined as something completely different, like social cohesion at the local level, um, kind of how, for example, there's report, I work on with the British Academy and the Public Policy Committee. And there they're doing a lot of work looking at how communities during COVID that were already previously maybe more advantaged, maybe healthier communities had a lot more community uptake of helping each other community activism than those that were already struggling. And so there's a way of looking at community health. And so people being a lot being even able to help each other. But I wonder whether for me that's not what I would say is the well-being that I study um I feel like it it might be able you you would look at community cohesion for example uh but maybe that's just me coming from the psychology psychological discipline where a lot of the things we do are individual based and where we try to measure individual level well
1: let me therefore ask Tamsin. So, um, you know, working in psychology and psychiatry, if I understand correctly, I'm curious how the well-being needs of children and adults differ. So on that individual level, but whether or not somebody or age somebody is, how does that differ in terms of their well-being needs?
4: Well, um, developmentally, the, you know, we all need clean air, clean water. You know, there's uh, food shelter you know that there is a kind of basic um, requirement but after that developmentally people will have different needs. Um, so um, there are various different sort of models of, of life stage um, but broadly speaking you know um, a baby an infant a toddler is hugely dependent on their parents and their family and the care that they get for their development that gradually during childhood and, and particularly in the teens, and this is where Amy will be the absolute expert, there's much more of a swing towards peers in terms of um, your development. Um, and so um, for primary school children, they need to play. It's how they learn, it's, it's not just fun. And in fact, I would argue that adults need to play and perhaps we get to play a little less than that heart's back to what Mark was saying about lockdown, providing some people who have the resources to perhaps really change their lifestyle and improve their well-being. So I think that there are similarities, but there are differences. I suspect it's much harder for those people who have small children who are trying to work and homeschool their children or or provide care for their children at the same time so it's essentially two full-time jobs Then say it is for me with teenage children who are in their first year at university so they're just stealing broadband (laughs) from me
1: I was going to say Amy do you want to add anything there about kind of adolescence in particular so maybe that transition between the particular sorts of needs of children and adults
3: A research project I recently completed here at Cambridge with looking at so a lot of well-being research there has been quite a lot of very nice well-being research across the lifespan so looking at how well-being develops across ages but most of them start at age 18 or 16 so that's where the data collection begins however there are two data sets being collected both in the UK and, and Germany, where there's actually child level data that you can merge into those data sets. Uh, and you actually can look at a life satisfaction measure all the way from age 10 to age, you know, 80 was the cutoff we use, but you could look at it all across the lifespan. And so what interested us was actually that adolescent age space, because there are major changes that are happening um, in how adolescents appraise their life. As Tamsin said, peers become more important, we, um, there's a lot of, adolescents see themselves differently in the respect to the communities they live in and the way that they judge their worth and and kind of judge where they, they sit, it's much more important what other people in their community and peers think of them. And so what we found is that actually there's an almost near universal decrease in life satisfaction if you look at adolescents from age 10 to age 20 for example so our, our modeling showed that we'd assume that over 99 percent of the adolescents in the samples which are multiple thousands uh would show a decrease in life satisfaction at that point and so then the question was what does that actually mean and that's where a lot of questions arise because as I posted this for the academic community in in late 2020, and there was a real split between people saying, "Well, that's just a difference in adolescence. Adolescents appraise the world differently, so naturally they'll start a- answering a question about how satisfied are you with your life very differently." <laughs> but then there are other, the other half of people were like, "Well, but that didn't just means that their life satisfaction is different. Their well-being has changed because the way that they appraise the world has changed. So it's a very circular argument around." why does the life satisfaction drop is it an actual drop in well-being is it a change in the way that adolescents brains work or is it just is it is that the same you know two sides of the same coin so i think that really showed me the difficulties of working in this space because i have always worked in the kind of tech linking to well-being and that was a project which was solely in the well-being space but i think it's very interesting and we need to think a lot more about what these measures mean but then also i think we need a lot we need to think about these age spans where it might be a bit more difficult to collect data or where those questionnaire measures we use might not fit, you know, like in children, you can't just ask them how, well, you could ask them how satisfied they are with their life, but it would mean something very different. So I think we're getting into that space where these questions become very, very difficult uh, to answer in a kind of complete, completely quantitative way. We start needing to actually debate and discuss what it means.
0: Can, can we get Mark in here and maybe also sort of add a bit of a future-focused perspective t- to this and sort of how this might change in the future?
5: So maybe one thing that I, I, I would um, say is that I think research in this space is pretty live. Um, and, and I think it, it has been a bit um, quiet for the last 10 or 15 years. And now it's about to ramp up again. So I think we could have could see some pretty big changes on this front. Um But uh, I don't know what those changes will be because it's sort of to be determined by the research. Um, One aspect of this um, changing response style thing that I think is very relevant for the policy debate um, is if if we want to think about measuring social progress using things like life satisfaction, um, then we need a measure that can, in a sense, keep getting better. Um, And one of the problems with life satisfaction is that it's capped at 10. So if you look around the UK at the moment, I think the average is about 7.6 and there's not a huge difference between places that are objectively seem to be doing quite well, like the, the southeast or whatever, and objectively doing quite badly, like parts of the north. There, so the north is like 7.2 and the south is 7.6 or something. Um, now, assuming that like, life just keeps getting better for the next 30 years, um, how, how are those kind of improvements going to turn up on these scales? Um, and one concern that, that I have and that some people have is that as people get towards the top of their scale, they don't change their responses, they change their scale. So the 8 out of 10 that they say this year and the 8 out of 10 that they said 20 years ago um, mean quite different um, amounts of satisfaction. Um, and I think that's definitely something that we need to um, explore a bit as we kind of take this into the policy realm.
0: So, like, well-being is is relative, I guess, to what you're currently experiencing and what you've experienced in the recent past. Is that sort of what you're saying there?
5: Yes, but also you want to distinguish between your well-being is relative and then your reporting of your well-being is relative. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And those are two separate issues that are really hard to disentangle. Um, yeah. And, and so I think like, we're putting a bunch of research into um, process at the moment that's trying to disentangle that. But I'm actually not very optimistic. Um, so we'll see.
1: Um, Amy, I wanted to ask you a question. So you, you highlighted there some of your work on the links between technology and well-being and mental health. So I just wanted to ask you, what do we know about that, about those links between technology, well-being and mental health?
3: I think we still know surprisingly little. And I think that's because for a long time, we've had the wrong approach to thinking about this question. Um, it's been a quite medical approach, because I think that's how we have approached new things in our environment for a long time. And you know, we all sit, I sit in the kind of medical school. <laughs> and so we all, I think the default was to think about, you know, what are the optimum numbers of minutes that a child of age x or y should spend online? Um, what are the let's quantify what technology, you know, what's time spent on screens is c- causing a decrease in well being and mental health, for example, I think, I think in the last two to three years, there's been an increasing understanding that that quest seems to have failed, mainly because there is n- that numerical link might be much harder to quantify because technologies are now become part of life so it'd be like i often take the metaphor you know it's like asking me how a a child is going to react to eating carbohydrates you know there's a huge range of effects there that you need to disentangle and it's the same with technologies and so yeah I, i think we are really at the beginning to even trying to understand how we approach it because we can't think about time spent on technologies because 20 minutes doing an exercise class on your iPad is very different to 20 minutes. um, Skyping your family is very different to 20 minutes scrolling on Instagram is very different to 20 minutes scrolling on Instagram when you've just been through a breakup and you're looking at your ex's page. So, you know, so we have all these, I think the time spent is something that we've, we need to retire, but there's not really something else. So I was talking to a parent organization yesterday. I'm trying to really understand the space a lot more. And they said that parents still want to know, you know, what time should we spend on our screens to make my child, you know, to, to ensure that they develop well and that they feel good. And we know that that is almost an unanswerable question, but we don't have an alternative to talk about, you know, they talk about, oh, you you know, it's about co use, it's about um, kind of reflection and and making the kind of encouraging the child to actively enact with the with technologies, etc. But these are all really complicated things to talk about. And so I think we're at that stage where academically, with technologies now becoming omnipresent in our lives, the way we approach the science will radically change. I think that in five, 10, 15 years, we'll have, you know, the, we'll have developmental psychologists just having a bit of tech research in that field, we'll have the clinical space having a bit of understanding of technology in that field. I don't think we'll have people like me, (laughs) um, how I did my PhD, where it was like, I do tech, (laughs) and I understand technology, I think we're gonna have it much more spread across the academic space. So yeah, it's difficult. I don't think we know a lot. Um, So yeah, and that's my monologue.
4: (laughs) If I could um, come in there, I totally agree that it's sort of it, it. There seems to be a way of reacting to new technologies, like penny dreadful novels, like the waltz, like video games you know every generation almost has its moral panic and there is a kind of assumption that it must be harmful so how do you limit it or you know and and each time there has been very little evidence of damage I mean gosh if we could get um, kids to read more books these days the fact that books were seen as a dreadful technology that you know that, that might harm children if they read too many of them, just seems ludicrous to us. But it was a very real moral panic sort of 150 years ago. Um, and because of that, it drives an agenda where worried parents want guidance about how many minutes. And Amy is absolutely right. We have very little longitudinal data. We have, Even in the cross-sectional data, there is some um, evidence that some young people feel more out of control with their... Um, media use and you know more influenced in their mood but is that because their mental health is poor so they're doing fewer things and they're engaging more with social media and the less helpful aspects of it or you know it's probably bi-directional but there is this assumption of harm when actually we have very little evidence and that just drives you down this is the problem how do we control it um, so I totally agree with Amy we need to step back be much broader and and as she says it's all about what you're doing on social media, how you're doing it, and who you're doing it with, rather than how many minutes on the screen.
2: Me again, I have some more questions, not to point any fingers, but mark you some fancy economicsy words.
0: Have no fear, we looked those up for you. This
1: is like a game show, except with no prizes. So behind curtain number one, we have
0: OECD countries. The OECD is the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. There are 37 OECD member countries across the globe, and the goal of the organization, according to their website, is to shape policies that foster prosperity, equality, opportunity, and well-being for all. Sounds pretty good.
1: And behind curtain number two, we have...
0: Economic neoliberalism. This is a brand of politics and policy making, which typically includes policies such as eliminating price controls, deregulating capital markets, lowering trade barriers, and reducing state influence in the economy especially through privatization and austerity at least according to wikipedia
1: i feel like there might be a lot of extra curtains hiding behind curtain number 2 um and finally behind curtain number 3 we have
0: life satisfaction this goes back to the idea that well-being is often measured in survey form with a rating scale where you can select a number from 1 to 10 with 1 being like a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day.
1: And 10 being a pop-tart-tastic, dozy life just can't get any better than this extravaganza.
0: I believe that's exactly what it says on the survey. Okay,
2: thanks for that. And remind me where all this economics chat came from.
1: Well, we were discussing the way in which COVID has accelerated debates around GDP and well-being. Basically, is GDP still a useful measure for people's well-being? Short answer, no.
2: So, well-being is more than just colour TVs, MTV, and microwave ovens? That ain't working? I was maybe going for a Dire Straits reference there. I guess that ain't working either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well done, well done. So yeah, people are reflecting on their values, what really matters to them, and COVID has allowed people to explore more different lifestyles. Maybe working from home, getting pets, moving out of cities.
1: Although we do have to recognize that not everyone has been so lucky. And that COVID has also had a crushingly negative effect for many people.
0: Right, our guests were also discussing how individual and societal measures of well-being are different, but that both are necessary.
1: We also heard about how the well-being needs of children differ from adults. We all need some basic requirements of life: clean air, water, food, shelter. But after that, everyone's needs are different, and those needs will depend on where you are in your life.
0: They didn't actually mention Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, but maybe that's lurking in the background here. Not that I would know anything about lurking.
1: Um, absolutely. The Hierarchy of Needs is one way that psychologists talk about needs, often represented as a pyramid going from basic physiological needs at the bottom of the pyramid, like food, water, warmth, rest, all the way to Pop-Tarts at the top
0: but it's not actually Pop-Tarts, is it?
1: Um, no, it's uh, self-actualization, but Pop-Tarts sounds way better to me. In theory, you have to meet the needs of each level in order to move up the
0: pyramid. And another need, not on Maslow's hierarchy, that children have is to play. Although Tamsin points out that adults need to play too.
2: And what about teenagers? They're definitely not children, but is there something unique about well-being from a teenager's perspective?
1: Well, Amy told us that there is a near universal decrease in life satisfaction if you look at adolescents aged between, say, 10 and 20.
2: But what does this mean? Do adolescents just see the world differently?
1: Well, if so, of course they'll start answering questions about life satisfaction differently. But maybe this just means their life satisfaction really is different. Sounds like the jury's out on that one.
2: And did we learn anything about how the concept of well-being might change in the future?
0: Well, a complicating factor Mark pointed out is that reporting of well-being is relative. You compare yourself to your peers in the here and now, rather than thinking far away and further back.
1: A long time ago and far, far away has got me wondering whether the empire used to measure life satisfaction You know, like the annual Death Star Life Satisfaction
0: Survey. Meanwhile, back in this galaxy, another problem is that if your well-being is high by some metric... Like if you
1: have lots of Pop-Tarts...
0: Right, like if you have lots of Pop-Tarts and your well-being is capped at, say, 10, then a year later you still have lots of Pop-Tarts, assuming they haven't gone stale, it's impossible to measure any increase according to the scales we currently use.
2: What do we know about the links between technology and mental health?
0: Good question. And one that Amy was perfectly placed to help us answer. She says it really matters what you're doing with technology and when, rather than the amount of time spent online or looking at a screen. Also, technology is now so integrated into our everyday lives that it's hard to separate it out from other factors. Future researchers are gonna have to look at a new way of studying its effects.
2: Am I right that Tamsin mentioned longitudinal data? What's that?
0: Behind curtain number four, we have... You guessed it. Longitudinal data. Or is that data? I never know. Anyways, this is data that is collected from the same people over time, sometimes over long periods of time. This can be really important in tracking trends and changes by asking the same people the same questions over and over at different points.
1: Okay, I think we can head back to the discussion where Naomi is about to break mind over chatter etiquette and bring up the dreaded pandemic again.
0: So we don't want to be too focused on the pandemic. But um, our our researchers sort of behind the scenes have informed us that you've you've published something recently called this, like step student about student experiences during the pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about that and any other current research that's happening in this area?
4: So they asked us to monitor mental health. So we're doing a mixture of the kind of things that Amy spoke about earlier, where we're asking about anxieties related to the pandemic. Um, We I hope that it will help the university understand the student needs a bit better and help us improve um, the Cambridge students' well-being. Separately to that, I have been involved in the national um, survey of children and young people. So in 2017, there was a big national survey. Um, and you know when we're thinking about mental health rather than well-being in children and young people, we have to appreciate that we went into the pandemic with rising rates of anxiety, depression, and self-harm. And it's harder to be clear about suicide because um, it's mercifully rare in the um, under 18s, but that did appear to be increasing as well. So the mental health of our child population was not great. Um, But we had done this national survey in 2017, and it just seemed a no brainer when you've got a carefully selected population study to go back to as many of them as we could get on board and see how they're doing now obviously we have two snapshots three years apart so we can't say that the pandemic caused this deterioration but we've gone from one or nine one out of nine meeting clinical thresholds probable clinical thresholds for needing to support to one in six of those aged five to 22. So there is some overlap with the student population because the sample was 2 to 19 when we first started and, of course, they're three years older. And literally last week, we started collecting a follow-up survey with these um, children and their families to see how they're doing now at the end of this second lockdown.
1: I wanted to ask another question, just keep keeping briefly with the kind of pandemic theme. Um, but I'm curious how we might think differently about wellbeing being after the pandemic or because of the pandemic so mark i'll throw that back to you first why and how might we think differently
5: so i guess one thing that stands out for me um is that uh the the importance of what we might call social capital or these kind of like community bonds and the ability to rely on other people in your immediate neighborhood um was really kind of brought to prominence um during the particularly the first lockdown Um, And I think uh, that's something that has been neglected at a cultural level and at a policy level for many decades. So my expectation is that there may be some uh, structural break on that front. We start to reinvest a bit more of our time and a bit more of our our public funds in community infrastructure and the kind of things that build social capital. So like at the moment, if you want to go and play football, um, you know, who do you, it's quite an arduous uh, effort to go and find which clubs exist in your area, which fields they use at what times, this kind of thing, um, making it easier for people to just kind of um, quickly access community might might be something that comes out. I think the homeworking thing is here to stay. Um, and I'm curious to see uh, what effect that has, um, at least uh, on um, kind of the professional classes that do a lot of homeworking. Um, Uh, So I think, you know, there's been an explosion in pet ownership, um, and I think people have moved out into the burbs a bit more and and into kind of out of the central city. And I think that will have implications for the kind of lifestyles that people value, Um, how that feeds into policy over the longer term. um, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I think there's also a little bit more of an idea about um, frontline workers and the people that we really depended on during the pandemic to keep things going are often the lowest paid and most vulnerable people in society. And maybe that will have some impact on how we think about minimum wage policy and the welfare system and that sort of stuff. But I'm also concerned that people will just kind of forget about that pretty quickly.
1: And Amy, how about you then? You know, how do you think we might think about well-being differently by virtue of the pandemic?
3: I think something that struck me in the last couple of months is how... Yes, we've all gone through the same pandemic. But I think it'd be a lie to say that we've all been in it together. You know, there's been a very differential impact across, if we just look at the UK across different UK communities. Um, And that's often on the level of previous deprivation or kind of ethnic and racial differences, um, differences in terms of community support um, and investment. And I think that we need to keep that in mind. Um, I think there'll be an increasing challenges, not just from the changes that have come from the pandemic. You know, you have people, people want to move out of the city centers, but actually for environmental reasons, we do want quite a good density of people. So how do we allow, you know, people, if everybody wants to move into the suburbs? What do we do with our environmental targets and that we don't want big suburban sprawl, for example? I think there are huge amounts of challenges about and I, I do think that we'll be in a huge state of flux around what it means to live a good life. And I think that as a society now, especially in our as academics with a very kind of active policy angle to our work, these are big questions to to ask and and to engage people with is what do we want the next 10 years to look like do we want everybody to start moving out of out of cities or how do we make sure that those people who have been left behind in the pandemic aren't left behind even more i think these are all major questions that do relate to well-being especially if we see how many children are struggling those years of disrupted schooling you know there's reports that say that those will not you know you can't ever catch that up so I think these are all these implications that we need to think about. Um, so it's much more than just on a personal level. What we think uh, is changing is that we should actually actively steer what we think, you know, well-being should look like in the next 10 years as a society.
0: So that leads really, really nicely on to the next question we had, which was. Like, how, are this, how is this new thinking about well-being going to shape our lives in the future? How is it going to affect decision-making, both for individuals and for government and policymakers? And, and Tamsin, I'll come to you first with that question, <laughs> that big question.
4: It is a big question, but I think it does lead quite nicely on from um, what Amy and, and Mark were just talking about. So if I stick to children and young people, because it's quite a long time since I thought about grown-ups other than parents, Um, you know, we, we have an opportunity to rethink how we support children. And I think the fact that we opened pubs, restaurants and hairdressers before we opened schools by quite a long way should really have brought us all up short. Um, in terms of how we as a society think about the well-being of children and families and I think they need to move centre to our planning they are our future they're a very precious resource and we can do much worse than starting with reappraising our education system which is very focused on on high stakes academic um, exams at the end which brand a huge number of children as failures and yet employers are saying that people come in without the skills that they need so we need to be having an education system that educates it's not about filling a vessel it's about lighting a fire it's like about teaching critical thinking about problem solving conflict resolution you know, building all those soft skills that perhaps it's difficult to have a gcse in but then there are other ways to assess so I would hope we could pause and reflect and start remodelling some of our key institutions, like education, into something that has a bigger emphasis on well-being, on values, on citizenship. For for want of a, a slightly um, older a phrase, rather than just you know academic excellence, which is important, but it's only one aspect of education.
0: Thanks. And Mark, what about you? This very big question about yeah. how these new ideas around well-being will shape our decision-making in the future.
5: Yeah. Um, so I have I have difficulty kind of separating my hopes from what I think will actually happen. Um, but I guess my hope is that there will be um, a bit more emphasis, and I think you've already seen this, on, on fairness and sustainability. Um, my hope is that that fairness debate in particular kind of Refrains from just relitigating 20th century politics of income, um, and takes a slightly more um, sophisticated approach where it's, you know, combating rentier capitalism. That's very important, but that's not really about well-being. Um, on the well-being front, kind of thinks more about um, providing the the basic um, material conditions for the economic and social conditions for people to thrive in the sense that they can live the kind of lives they want to live and do the things they want to do. And so that requires big investments, I think, in public education, health and transit, in community infrastructure, um, and then also just kind of softening a few things in the system. So one thing that's recently come out of some qualitative work that we're doing with um, people in poverty and their well-being is that a lot of them talk about just needing a circuit breaker and needing bandwidth to think about Um, what kind of um, pathway out of poverty would be sustainable for them. So often they've fallen into poverty because they were working quite well, but the job that they had, they just hated. It was just really bad for them. And eventually their depression caught up with them and their alcohol use caught up with them and so on. And now if they had a bit of time to just figure out what job would suit them, then they might come more sustainably out of poverty. And that kind of thinking, I think, leads to some policy conclusions, like maybe instead of a welfare system that's highly punitive, um, you instead kind of have have a thinking about proper unemployment insurance where people get some kind of slightly higher compensatory wage for six months, and then it moves to the punitive system. Just like I, so I think there are going to be some tweaks on that front. I think education, as Tamsin said, is is huge, and I think that's really one of the most important fronts for transformative change around well-being. So the kind of slogan that I like is preparing people for life, not just work. Um, and I think on that front, there's a lot of um, Movement around developing curricula that can help people with with some of the necessary skills for well-being. So there's um the Healthy Minds program that's been um trialled in the UK, and then there's also the Enhanced program, which has been trialled in the US. Which are these kind of mood management training things that teach people about gratitude techniques and mindfulness and these kind of things. And then there's also the personal strengths idea that uh, Martin Seligman and others developed around helping people to identify their authentic values and what they're good at and then that will kind of help them pick jobs and lifestyles more broadly that will help them to flourish and i think there's a whole lot of other things there like out of self-determination theory we have this idea that we should help kids to kind of identify their intrinsic motivations um, and and help them form uh healthier relationships with people that that kind of nourish those intrinsic motivations so heaps of heaps of stuff there
0: Lots, lots to take in there I mean like there's some really interesting stuff around values I guess that kind of kind of speaks to your last point there about the pandemic has all forced us all to rethink our our values and why we, we're doing what we're doing
3: I think the one thing I can add is that naturally our our lives have changed with the technologies that we use and we are in a time of really rapid technological change and I think that a lot of questions around that that are asked that actually really boil down to what it is what is it to live a good life <laughs> you know all the things about digital well-being digital mental health um getting balance of you know non-digital time and digital time etc and i i think there you really come down to asking what is valuable you know i when i moved to cambridge um i had a really i was walking around the city with um professor sarah jane blakemore at the psychology department and i said something fleetingly like naturally i would like my children to play the piano rather than playing fifa and she was like well there's no why you know like there's similar skills it's you know if they interact with it if they enjoy it it's you know there it's dexterity so why is it why is the piano different and i feel like it still comes with me now because I still don't know why that's my judgment and there is actually no evidence and so those are actually pure value judgments why I value the piano more than than the FIFA game um, so I think I think those questions actually are maybe not in the academic space and that's where I my perspective has really changed to oh I can quantify things and that's my work and you know that's what I'll do for the next 20 30 years to that a lot of these questions around well-being, around a changing world often come down to the values. And that's where being at a university with people in a lot of different disciplines can be hugely helpful and inspirational.
1: What do you look forward to when you think about the future? Mark's kind of already touched upon this, you know, what he would like to see, but very quickly from each of you, and let's go to Tamsin first. What do you look forward to thinking about the future?
4: I would want to be in a future where children, families, and actually relationships, because it's all about relationships, um, were more valued, um, along with integrity, um, which I think has rather got lost, particularly from public life over the last couple of decades.
3: In addition to what Tamlin said, I think what what motivates me to get up in the morning is to figure out a way that we can live with technological change that feels controlled, where it becomes public infrastructure that is tested and that is understood before it's rolled out across multiple different countries and communities. And I think that will need academic involvement, but also political, public um, and third sector. So I think that's a big challenge, but I think we'll need to get our head around that.
5: Yeah, I hope that eventually we can get to a situation where we, in a sense, have a post-scarcity society that encourages and celebrates people to self-actualize and kind of live their best life according to them, um, rather than kind of steering people towards a much more simplistic notion of of success that's that's basically about, are you working a lot and are you making a lot of money, which suits a lot of people, and that's great, but also doesn't suit a lot of people. And I'd like us to be more sophisticated about that.
0: Right, I think we've covered some good ground here. We learned about STEP, S-T-E-P, or Student Experiences During the Pandemic, a study here in Cambridge monitoring the mental health and well-being of our students. There's a link in the episode description for more information about STEP if you're interested. Um, And we also braved the concept of COVID to discuss how we might feel differently about well-being after the pandemic or because of the pandemic.
1: Absolutely. A hugely disruptive event like a pandemic can be a great time to make big changes. Like we said, lots of people have taken time to reassess their values and to try and align their lives to those values a bit better, but not everyone has had that luxury.
0: No, the pandemic has impacted different groups of people very differently. So we're all in this together and also not at all. We really have to be mindful of people's different experiences and that's super important. What makes life good for you like Pop-Tarts might not be the same as what makes life good for me. I have a complicated relationship with (laughs) Pop-Tarts.
1: So, so, (laughs) Relationship status, it's complicated. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So I guess the big question is now that we have developed some new ideas about well-being what do we want the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years to look like post-pandemic?
0: Gosh, that is a big question. I'm guessing James's answer would have something to do with more Pop-Tarts.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm deeply regretting bringing up the Pop-Tarts now.
2: But it's not a question of just Pop-Tarts. It's how many toasters do you have as well, right? You know?
1: Oh, God. I mean, like, you know, like, Pop-Tarts, Pop-Tarts everywhere, but not a toaster to toast. That would be like, you know, hell on earth.
0: Nightmare. Nightmare scenario there Although for James. You,
1: you can eat them cold.
0: was there anything that was surprising or stuck out to you
2: i'm trying to think when you say surprising gosh no i relatable i think is totally the the word i'd say because you know thinking about how everyone is the different experiences of the pandemic and what everyone's different visions are for the future is probably the thing that i thought about most away from the episode
0: yeah, I think the the note about how a disruption can be a really good time to make changes is a good thing to keep in mind for like personal experiences as well, for sure.
1: Um, I was surprised really that well-being turned out to be such a slippery subject in the end. I would have thought maybe that you know we found the right people and we push them hard enough and they tell us exactly what it is. <laughs> Not
2: define so it, easy. Define it. Define it. <laughs> define it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, last, last season we had climate change was like a toddler with sticky fingers and this season well-being is like a... Slippery eel. Slippery fish yeah. eel. Yeah, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> Great metaphor.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode.
0: Yeah, there was so much interesting stuff in there. I can honestly say this was one of my favourites of the series. You
1: say that every episode.
2: Well, now that I've heard that episode, I'm going to go take a step away, reassess my life, fill out some more surveys on Facebook that I've been meaning to do, and think about getting some more Pop-Tarts.
0: So stay tuned for our next episode about creating a more just future. Before then, please
1: fill out our survey, the link is in the episode description, to tell us what you think of the podcast. Be honest. And make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts.
2: A good one, please.
1: (laughs) And as ever, please spread the mind over chatter word by telling...
0: Just everyone. Just tell everyone.
1: A huge thanks once again to our guests... Amy Auburn, Mark Fabian, and Tamsin Ford, and to our two fantastic behind the scenes helpers this series, Annie Thwaite and Charlotte Zemmel.
2: Music was by the extremely talented Carlo Ladd, and artwork by the equally talented Alex Sadler. See you next
3: time. Bye-bye. Bye bye.